hppodcraft.com. <laughs> When Mr. Hiram B. Otis, the American minister, bought Canterville Chase, everyone told him he was doing a very foolish thing, as there was no doubt at all that the place was haunted. Indeed, Lord Canterville himself, who was a man of the most punctilious honour, had felt it his duty to mention the fact to Mr. Otis when they came to discuss terms. We have not cared to live in the place ourselves, said Lord Canterville, since my great-aunt, the Dowager Duchess of Bolton, was frightened into a fit from which she never really recovered, by two skeleton hands being placed on her shoulders as she was dressing for dinner. And I feel bound to tell you, Mr. Otis, that the ghost has been seen by several living members of my family, as well as the rector of the parish. After the unfortunate accident to the Duchess, None of our younger servants would stay with us, and Lady Canterville often got very little sleep at night, in consequence of the mysterious noises that came from the corridor and the library. My lord, answered the minister, I will take the furniture and the ghost at valuation. I have come from a modern country where we have everything money can buy, and with all our spry young fellows painting the old world red and carrying off your best actors and prima donnas, I reckon there was such a thing as a ghost in Europe We'd have it at home in a very short time in one of our public museums, or on the road as a show. That was Oscar Wilde from his story, The Canterville Ghost. And you're joining us here at the Antiques Ghost Show, or the, <laughs> or the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. <laughs> HPPodcraft.com. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And uh, who was that reader that we heard there? And that is David Beer. He is joining us again for August. August, the return of Phantasme. The return of Phantasme, which I, I've been delighting in that wonderful name that we have for this month. Thank you, David, for, for reading. On the uh, topic of carrying off the best actors, mm-hmm. and I want to get into the story in a second, but this comes up a lot. Why, are, why do you think, or if you've even noticed, there are so many British actors cast in American roles? I've noticed this as well. I'm not saying that... British actors are worse or better? I mean, maybe some people think that the Brits just have better schools, better actors. That can't possibly be, though. It's like the guy from uh, True Blood. Uh-huh. He's English guy, plays an American. Yeah, the main dude in The Walking Dead, who's a Southern cop, is right. British for some reason. Paul Blackthorne, who was on the Dresden TV show and now is on Arrow. He's English. Yeah. I mean, Scarlett O'Hara was English. Look, if they do the accent and it's fine, and I usually don't notice. For example, I didn't know The Walking Dead guy was British for a while. Right. You know, I didn't know Stringer Bell from The Wire was a was a British guy. That, that happens a lot where I don't know. But sometimes it, it's really obvious. I've been watching this show. I don't want to call anybody out, but I watched this show recently where the main characters were all from Chicago. And the daughter in the show couldn't have been more British. Like, there was nothing she said that even resembled <laughs> American dialect. And it's like she was, why is she in this role? Or Black Hawk Down. Have you ever seen that movie? Boy, have I. I mean, there's, there's like a scene between uh, Orlando Bloom and Ewan McGregor. Dude, Ewan McGregor is the worst perpetrator it's, of the bad American accent. It's terrible. I love him. I love Ewan McGregor. But for some reason, he just, I don't, I don't know what part of America he's supposed to be from. I don't either. Well, that's, it's, it's the weird thing. It's sort of like in old uh, silver screen films. The Americans affected this borderline English accent. Sure, yes. You know, they always sort of talked like this and it wasn't quite British, but a little bit. I think sometimes there's perhaps going on in the psyche of the American this still, and I think it connects to the story maybe, this feeling that we're not very cultured. Yep. And we're kind of dullards. And maybe these American producers are 
trying to catch up a little bit by continually casting. It's not just English. It's Australian actors as well. Right. In these American roles, maybe it feels a little more like, hey, look, we've got some culture here because not everybody's American. Could be. Could be. And I I, I just attribute it mostly to Americans' fascination with English people. Yes. Americans just love English. They do. Absolutely. They do. I married one. (laughs) Well, there's this sense. I don't want to get beat up over this, but there's this sense that we don't have our own long history. That's because our long history is pretty much English history. Exactly, exactly. So it's it's you absorb it in school, and uh, it kind of feels like you're connected to it, yet not you're not at all. So yeah, I totally understand the fascination, and I think that's probably must be what it is. But uh, gosh darn, I wish some of these American actors would get a better chance at it. <laughs> They're taking our jobs. No, it's not like. <laughs> Like that, yeah, I think that's what's going on, Pfeiffer. I think. You're... Come on, if you're gonna put a daughter in a story and she's from Chicago, cast a Chicago actress. What's wrong with that? Why, you know, why do that? Yeah, or it's maybe just people who know one another. Like yeah. maybe the guy that's putting on maybe a casting director is English and mm-hmm. he knows a bunch of English actors, and so he ends up hiring these English actors. Or a director has worked with people and he might be English and he's yeah. doing it. Because he's worked with them in the past. Because, you know, just like any other business, it's who you know. And you're comfortable working with people that you've worked with before. It's like, hey, bud, you could do an English accent, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) Sure. I've seen Mary Poppins. This story (laughs) has seen its share of actors for sure, though. There's something like, I had no idea. There were like 10 to 15 TV movie radio adaptations. So many, yeah. Uh, Patrick Stewart's been in it. David Niven. Charles Lawton. There's a version with John Gielgud and Alyssa Milano. What? Yeah. This is a very appealing story to be adapted. It was actually the first of wild stories to be published, published in the magazine The Court and Society Review in February 1887. Hmm. Uh, he'd, he'd done a lot of, he was famous for his poetry, I think, up till that point. Yeah. And I know that he had visited America on a lecture tour around 1882. I don't know how much we have to say about Oscar Wilde. Well, he, he was a big playwright for a time. Uh, Salome, which was notoriously banned, I think. Uh, Importance of being erst. Which, by the way, I saw in Los Angeles. This going against what I said earlier. They did a production at the Banshee Theater, which is the theater that the Lovecraft Historical Society uses for their various things. And Andrew Lehman was an excellent Lady Bracknell in that production. <laughs> I'm not joking. He played the part. He was wonderful. <laughs> I'm sorry. I as a British that. matriarch. Yeah, it was really it was really incredible. And a lot of this story functions. I mean, I guess it's OK that we're talking about this stuff at the top, because a lot of the story functions as a contrast between Americans and British or the old world. Right. Although through the lens of me reading it now, I'd say it's really more about consumerism or pragmatism versus romanticism. At first, I think he's slamming Americans and I think he's slamming the English and then it doesn't seem to be slamming either. Or (laughs) is it tradition? I don't know. Even in, you know, in any culture, you have people who are wanting the world to be more vibrant, beautiful and strange and perplexing than it actually is. And then you have people who are just here to solve problems and make things work. Mm -hmm. And those are the two contrasts. Well, let's talk about it as we go through the story. Let's dig in. What's the setup there? It's an American guy, Mr. Hiram B. Otis, and he's buying this elaborate estate, this manor home that's called uh, Canterville Chase from Lord Canterville. It's his family's home. They call Mr. Otis an American minister, which I'm not sure if he's an ambassador, because they say he's the American minister. I got the impression, why would these Americans be here otherwise? So I think they must be, uh, yeah, an ambassador from the U.S. of some kind. Lord Canterville insists that the place is haunted 
And he is warning Mr. Otis about this before he sells him the house. And of course, Mr. Otis just doesn't believe in ghosts. So he says, you know, whatever, I don't care. Include the ghost in the uh, price. That's great. We're getting a little bonus thing here. Now, the, the, <laughs> one of the greatest appeals in the story is that I think Wilde makes fun of a lot of gothic horror tropes, but he kind of invents some new ones, too, to make fun of. And I th- for me, the reason I like this so much is every time he brought one of these up, I was like, that's another bad story we're not going to have to read. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right at the beginning, he talks about the two skeleton hands being placed on the woman's shoulders at dinner. I could see that being the giant climax yeah. of one of these stories. Something else that he says, it has been known for three centuries, since 1584, that the Canterville ghost always makes its appearance before the death of any member of the family. To which Otis replies, well, so does the family doctor, probably. Yeah, He just dispels it right away. Right. And, you know, that's another thing like the whippoorwills in the Dunwich horror always sure. appear before it's a romantic idea that this thing's going to manifest and he just completely pragmatically dismisses it right away mm. lots of things probably happen before somebody dies you don't think they're supernatural true they make the purchase a few months later he moves in with his whole family we get the lowdown on the whole Otis family mm-hmm. it is uh, his wife Mrs. Lucretia R. Otis uh, and she's a New York socialite she's an attractive middle-aged woman their oldest son is Washington They have a teenage daughter who's very pretty and petite named Virginia and the twins, which are the youngest, and they're two boys. And they don't have any names, but they call them the Stars and Stripes. So this family couldn't be any more American. There's a kid named Washington. The kids are nicknamed Stars and Stripes. There's a great line about Mrs. Otis I thought was funny where, you know, typically when Americans move over to the continent, they adopt this appearance of chronic ill health, I think, as a way to try to fit in, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to seem artsier or, or something like that. But she doesn't do it. She stays healthy. And Wilde says, indeed, in many respects, she was quite English and was an excellent example of the fact that we have really everything in common with America nowadays, except, of course, language. Yeah. <laughs> Just a classic Wilde joke. Yeah. A thing that will come up later in the story is Virginia, she's a very accomplished writer. Yes. At one point... Early on, they talk about she was out riding, and the Duke of Cheshire, Caesar, falls in love with her, proposes to her on the spot. Her father poo-poos it. Yeah, of course, because they're a little too young for that at this point. Yeah, they're too young, and also it's just later on we find out he doesn't like the whole titles. Nonsense. Oh, right. Yeah, that bugs him. But Virginia yeah. is, uh, she's a heck of a girl, and she, had, yeah, she'd been racing and she lapped this guy, Lord Bilton. So the Duke just thinks she's the bee's knees. We start with them coming to the estate for the first time. The train station is seven miles away so they have to get a coach it brings them in now they talk about how beautiful the countryside is but when they start to get close to the manor house it gets dark and stormy mm-hmm. you know kind of setting that gothic mood again right they meet on the front steps a housekeeper her name's mrs umney she's with the previous family and has agreed to stay on one mm-hmm. of the few ones because everybody else is kind of freaked out by this ghost she shows them around and they notice that there's a, a stain on the carpet in front of one of the fireplaces. Mrs. Otis is like, oh dear, this is horrible. Get rid of it. I don't want it. <laughs> and that's, the, you get the backstory for the whole. Exactly. Right there, right? And she goes, yeah, well, that's the blood of Lady Eleanor de Canterville, who was murdered on that spot by her own husband, Sir Simon de Canterville, in 1574. Sir Simon survived her nine years, disappeared suddenly under mysterious circumstances. His body was never discovered. But his guilty spirit still haunts this place. She says something very interesting about it not being removed. She says the bloodstain has been much admired by tourists and others and cannot be removed. Uh, Which I think is why it can't be removed. (laughs) They don't want to remove it, yeah. But of course, Washington 
right away says, this is nonsense. Pinkerton's champion stain remover and Paragon detergent will clean it up in no time. And he jumps down. He's got this still little black stick and he pretty he gets it off the floor right away. This guy's a go-getter, too. Yeah. You know, he doesn't yell at somebody else to do it. He just no. does it himself. He gets down there and he takes care of it with Pinkerton's champion stain remover. And then there's this bolt of lightning and loud thunderclap. Mrs. Omni faints. It's the total gothic setup. You have the bad weather. You have this horrific backstory. Superstitious servant who then passes out. We have a fainting spell. It's Everything is perfect. Mrs. Otis asks, well, what are we going to do with this woman who faints? And Mr. Otis goes, well, we just start knocking her pay every time she faints. Yeah. <laughs> and then pretty quickly, they say, uh, she wakes back up. Oh, 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 what happened? I... <laughs> yeah. And that was, I mean, she woke up because she heard him say that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's like, if she's going to keep fainting, we'll charge. Those are her breaks. And, we, you know, we're going to take her off the clock. It's really funny. <laughs> it's like it's like the servants in these old Gothic mansions are kind of like soccer or football players who throw themselves on the ground just to see how much they can get out of it. You know, oh, I'm really injured. You know, like anytime there's a remote sound, she just falls onto the ground to try. Well, yeah, and that they play into these romantic ideas. Yeah. And and actually, I almost missed it. But at the end of this chapter, Mrs. Umney, she as they've woken her up, she invokes the blessings of Providence on her new master and mistress, makes an arrangement for an increase of salary and then totters off to her own room. So even at this point, she got a raise somehow. There's this commodification of the supernatural. I mean, obviously... In England, there's a lot of that, right? Where people, oh, sure. take, you know, the Tower of London or they, you know, want to go to these old manor houses because there's got to be a ghost story for the yeah. people to get the full experience, right? There there are ghost tours in pretty much every town in uh, the UK. It's funny where my wife, Heather, is from Alton, Illinois. Now they've got this whole supernatural. We're the most haunted place in Illinois. And it drives a lot of their economy now. Wow. <laughs> Getting people through haunted houses. Everything is haunted there because they got a reputation of having a couple haunted houses. The money machine got behind it. So I think this story kind of plays with that idea as well. Right. Chapter two. The next day they come down and the stain's back. Mr. Otis cleans it again. Then the next day, stain's back. And this goes on for a few days. And Mr. Otis finally relents and just goes, wow, I think there actually is a ghost. Yeah, it's the most relaxed way yeah. anybody's ever reacted to this. They just say, well, I guess they, they don't just accept it, actually. They kind of get into it. Yeah. Mrs. Otis joins a, a psychical society. And uh-huh. I think Washington writes a, a letter about manifestations of bloodstains on floors. He gets very academic about yeah. it. But still, they're not scared. They approach no. it in all of these fun ways. Then one night at about 11 o'clock, everybody goes to bed. Mr. Otis hears a sound outside of his room. It's the clanking of metal. And it sounds like maybe it's chains and it's coming closer and closer to his door. He's going to investigate. He put on his slippers took a small oblong file out of his dressing case and opened the door. Right in front of him he saw, in the wan moonlight, an old man of terrible aspect. His eyes were as red burning coals. Long grey hair fell over his shoulders in matted coils. His garments, which were of antique cut, were soiled and ragged, and from his wrists and ankles hung heavy manacles and rusty gyves. My dear sir, said Mr. Otis, I really must insist on you oiling those chains and have brought for you that purpose a small bottle of the Tamane Rising Sun Lubricator. It is said to be completely efficacious upon one application, and there are several testimonials to that effect on the wrapper from some of our most eminent native divines. I shall leave it here for you by the bedroom candles and will be happy to supply you with more should you require it. <laughs> he loves giving brand names. He does. Well, it makes it, uh, you know, the fact that they have these specific brands that they like, it just adds that reality, specificity to it. it. Wild before that that whole thing was also careful to note that during the day, as the family had been out riding around and taking in the countryside, they weren't talking about ghosts. 
They weren't doing anything that would suggest to Mr. Otis that he was going to have a supernatural experience later. Because, of course, in all these stories we read, the experiences are always led up to by long conversations about whether we're alone in the world or not, you know? Oh, right, yeah. (laughs) And that kind of influences people's minds later when they see or don't see these things. Yeah. But the way he characterizes their conversation, they're talking actresses like, is Fanny Devonport better than Sarah Bernhardt? They're talking about how New York accents are better than London (laughs) accents. I mean, they're basically just having the most average kind of modern conversation you can have. Sure, sure. So it's really interesting. After this, uh, him putting down the the oil on the table, the ghost just gets really angry and knocks it off, (laughs) bashes it off and starts to howl and scream and go flying down the hallway. And then right as he does, two white robed figures come flying out of one of the doors and throw pillows at him. Yeah. (laughs) And it just freaks him, freaks out the ghost. And the ghost goes off and goes through a wall. Yeah, it says hastily adopting the fourth dimension of space as a means of escape. He vanished through the wainscoting. So he's got his own private room. Yeah, it's like a hidden room, like a secret compartment passageway kind of thing that nobody knows about that he goes into. And and there's certain rules about ghosts that are kind of set up in the story that he seems to be able to interact with the physical world. In fact, he exists in the physical world. He doesn't like go someplace else, like another dimension or anything. He actually just goes to this little hidey hole that he has in in the house. Yeah, I think he can pass through things if he tries to, but in general, a pillow hits him, he feels it. (laughs) Right. And those kids are just little menaces. Yeah, and that's the twins. The two white-robed figures were the the twins that came out through through the pillow. And this is the turn where the ghost becomes the protagonist of the story. Yeah. Up till here, you weren't sure who it was going to be. And the family were such broad kind of caricatures that it's nice that finally, okay, we've settled into this is the guy. And obviously, this is a pretty influential conceit. I mean, the fact that it's been filmed so many times, but also... I mean, what did it make you think of right away? Beetlejuice. Me too. He's kind of trapped in this house. He's trying to scare them. And as the story goes on, he talks about all these different tricks that he's had and different Mm -hmm. ways that he scared people to get them to come out of the house, which is totally Beetlejuice. Obviously, Beetlejuice probably borrowed from this story or maybe influenced in some way. Yeah. Just because it really feels like that. And having people in the house that aren't afraid of the ghost and that's this guy's issue right because they're too modern and weird for it to affect them and then the characters in beetlejuice they're all ultra modern Mm -hmm. and artists and uh, bohemians and this kind of stuff they find oh wow that'd be great if we had a ghost and it's the same kind of thing Yeah. yeah and i love the the ghost is really upset because as you say he's got lots of tricks that he's used in the past and he's very much like a conceited actor yeah in that he's he cannot believe they didn't fall for some of his great tricks yeah, I mean, he's got bits, he's got characters, he does different <laughs> different outfits. Yeah. and you know, But when he recounts some of the things that he's been successful with in the past, again, it's that thing where I'm glad I didn't have to read these stories. Right. There's a part where he had frightened a woman who was looking in the mirror in her lace and diamonds because he appeared behind her. There's like, mm-hmm. oh, And the consequences for these things are great, too. They really sound like the stories we cover. Uh, he blew out a candle of a guy as he was leaving a library, and that guy has since been under the care of Sir William Gull. You know, and there's a Madame de Tremoliac who woke one morning and saw a skeleton seated in her armchair and has now been confined to her bed for six weeks with an attack of brain fever and then became religious afterwards because of this. I mean, these people are really affected by the stuff that he does. Yeah. Uh, he, there was a butler who shot himself because he'd seen a green hand tapping at the window pane, which really could have been House on the Borderland. <laughs> it's, it's basically what happened in there. 
<laughs> right? Because the guy was thinking about suicide while the green yeah. hand was tapping on. And then you have um, a woman has to wear a black velvet band round her throat to hide the mark of five fingers burnt upon her white skin. And who finally drowned herself in a carp pond. Everything has that tragedy and, yeah. and uh, the, the type of stuff that we cover all the time. But it's dashed off so quickly and made to look humorous. He really has the feeling of, a, of an actor with a big ego. Mm-hmm. And his ego's really been bruised right now. The way he's comforting himself is by, don't they know that I was wonderful when I carried <laughs> right. off my buffoons before? You know, he's very, he's looking to the past and all of the great roles that he's had. And yeah. He can't believe that in this modern world, he doesn't really fit in anymore. He's kind of like a silent movie actor or something like that. <laughs> Uh, and so at the end of it he bows vengeance come up with a way to really scare these people and that gets us into chapter three actually you reminded me of the americans a little bit from back you know last week we covered the phantom rickshaw but when we brought the title up you were like rickshaw what's scary about that why am i supposed to be scared about a phantom rickshaw (laughs) you're all annoyed by it you know it's exactly how these guys are (laughs) well i'm an american Chapter three we get into here. Uh, it's the next morning. The Otis family talks about this ghost incident over breakfast. And Mr. Otis says he doesn't wish any harm to the ghost. He just kind of wants him to be a little bit more considerate of everybody else that's living there. And yeah. he admonishes the boys for throwing pillow at him, saying that, you know, that was rude. You shouldn't have done that. Yeah, he's so nice. He says, hopefully he uses that product for the chains. I don't want to have to take them away from him. So uh, no other occurrence happens for the week except for the blood stain coming back. Washington's the one that keeps cleaning it. Strangely enough, the color slowly kind of changes day after day. Like it, it's red and then it kind of becomes like kind of a dull red and then kind of a purplish color. And then finally, by the end of the week, it's like a bright green. <laughs> yeah. And every time they see it, Virginia seems very upset by it, but she doesn't explain anything to anybody. And we'll get her reasoning behind being upset for it later. Now, the next event that it happens is the following Sunday when a crash is heard from the hall. They all rush down to see that there's a suit of armor that has fallen and the Canterville ghost is there rubbing his knees with this look of anguish on his face and the twins pull out pea shooters and they shoot him and then he screams in anger floats up the stairs you know giving kind of his best scary laugh howl noise he floats up the stairs the Mrs. Otis comes out and she goes boy you sound terrible I have some medicine for you And he goes, that's it. I'm turning into the big black dog. And then that's going to be the end of it. But then he hears the others all coming up the stairs and he just kind of gets flummoxed and then beats it. There's more crappy story ideas in that moment because he can't believe they're not falling for his laugh. He's very proud of his demonic laugh. And he says, it was said to have turned Lord Raker's wig gray in a single night, (laughs) which (laughs) I'm telling you right now, if I ever get the chance to steal that, I'm going to. The fact that it's the wig that turned gray is scary. So he gives up for the night, retreats back to his little hidey hole, his room. We find out that what he was trying to do was put on the suit of armor and scare them with it because he's like, oh, that's a classic. The walking around suit of armor thing. That's that's terrifying. Yeah. But the weight of it was too much for him, and he fell down on his on his knees in the suit of armor, and he wrapped his knuckles really bad, too. He just doesn't have it anymore. He's kind of lost his touch. That was even his suit of armor when he was alive. Exactly. Now, what he may not know and what isn't described in the story is that earlier the Otis family was down on the beach, and they found a suit of armor down there, <laughs> and they brought it back. <laughs> So the reason he couldn't get it on is there's somebody in there who's waiting to rob the house. But from here, he makes a point-by-point plan on how he's going to get these guys. It's really funny to me because it just seems like 
somebody that's not very smart or like a child's plan of revenge. Yeah, totally. To like, goes, first, <laughs> I'm going to go into Washington's room and I'm going to gibber at the foot of the bed and I'll pull out a knife and I'll stab myself in the throat three times. Yeah. There'll be some music in there, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. I'll make some creepy music sounds, yeah. too. <laughs> Next, I'm going to go to the minister in his wife's room and then I'll put a clammy hand on Mrs. Otis's forehead and then uh. I'll... I'll whisper secrets of charnel houses into his ear. Yeah. And then, well, Virginia, she's been pretty nice, so I'll just do a few groans from her wardrobe, and that'll be enough for her. Yeah, yeah. But the twins, oh, those guys are going to get it. I'm going <laughs> to sit on their chest so they get the sensation that they're having a nightmare, and then I'm going to stand between them in the form of a green, icy corpse until they become paralyzed with fear, and then they're going to get so scared, paralysis will wear off, and then they'll just run screaming out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> he's got some of his characters he's going to throw in there, too. Yeah. I think he's going to crawl around their room with white bleached bones and one rolling eyeball in the character of Dumb Daniel or the Suicide <laughs> Skeleton. His characters are so good they have more than one name. They're legendary. Yeah. So at midnight, he finally sallies forth to, to dispatch his plan. And it's got a great goth buildup where the owl beats against the window panes. The wind wanders moaning around the house like a lost soul. Wild's writing is pretty good here. Yeah. On and on, he glides like an evil shadow, the very darkness seeming to loathe him as he passes. <laughs> he goes on, <laughs> muttering strange 16th century curses and ever and anon brandishing the rusty dagger in the midnight air. And he's just about to go into Washington's room and start the plan when... Right in front of him was standing a horrible specter, motionless as a carven image and monstrous as a madman's dream. Its head was bald and burnished, its face round and fat and white. And hideous laughter seems to have writhed its features into an eternal grin. From the eyes streamed rays of scarlet light. The mouth was a wide well of fire, and a hideous garment, like to his own, swathed with its silent snows the titan form. On its breast was a placard with strange writing in antique characters. Some scroll of shame, it seemed. Some record of wild sins, some awful calendar of crime. And with its right hand, it bore aloft a falchion of gleaming steel. Whoa. So it's another ghost. Yeah. Or is it? Yeah, it sounds pretty nasty, but he runs away. <laughs> I mean, he, oh, he takes off, <laughs> runs away, goes to his little secret apartment, flings himself down on the bed, hides his face under his clothes. And then he kind of gets some courage up. He finally goes, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's another ghost here. Maybe I can get that ghost to help me get rid of these people because two ghosts are better than one. He finally gets the courage up. He goes to face this ghost and he sees the specter and he realizes it's leaning up against the wall in this kind yeah. of weird way. Seems a little deflated. Yeah. Huh. Its head's kind of slipped off and rolled onto the floor. <laughs> He finally gets up to it and realizes it's just a scarecrow, basically. It's a dummy. It's, it's a ghost that the uh, the kids have put up there. And the placard that it's holding says, the only true and original spook, beware you imitations, all others are counterfeit. This is the Otis <laughs> ghost. So they made up their own ghost to show him that they're, you know, they've got a scarier one. He got scared by a fake ghost. He's a pretty bad ghost. I think that little prank is a good place to stop right now. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> this really, to me, resembled an inexperienced ghost or the story of the inexperienced ghost by H.G. Right. Wells that we read before. It's similar in that it sets him the ghost up as sort of a pathetic, ineffectual character. And then at the end, it has some actual supernatural stuff that happens that actually is a little deeper than that. So in the next episode, we can talk about that. This was actually written first, though. The H.G. Wells story, I think, was like 1902 or something like that. Other authors we've covered... 
Mm-hmm. Oscar Wilde's childhood sweetheart ended up becoming Bram Stoker's wife. What? Yeah, that was just a little tidbit I didn't know about. She let him know that she was getting engaged to Bram Stoker, and he was like, oh, that's too bad. I really, really loved you when we were little. Oh, but wait, he's gay. Well, yeah, but he still got married and he had kids. And- Oscar Wilde did? Oh, yeah. It's really awful, actually, because after he went on trial and was exiled, you know, his wife changed her name. The kids were raised under a different name. Oh, man. Because of the the association. I think his... I'd have to look it up again, but I think his kids in their own right became uh, writers. And- I knew that... Well, he had that trial where he actually tried to sue somebody for libel, and then that guy... Mm-hmm hired a bunch of private investigators because the, the you can go to jail for libel yes. and the guy was like I'm not going to jail so he hired some investigators because basically I think he said he was a, a sodomite well the father who he was, it was the guy he was suing I think was the father of his lover right basically the guy found some male prostitutes that said they had slept with him once that came out in court he dropped the libel case and then they brought another case immediately and convicted him and he went to jail right. for two years yeah and hard labor too not like easy jail no he was punished for being different it's pretty bad and there's some uh, talk about him being like a a pedophile but he wasn't at all like the the youngest person that well i mean who knows you don't really know but the youngest person that is recorded that he's ever was with was 16 now that is a big age gap but 16 is even still the age of consent in the uk i'm sure it was just something that i mean it's sort of like one time i was having a conversation with some with two people one of whom was gay and the other guy says we were talking about really messed up stuff. And one of them was talking about a, a guy who was having sex with animals or something like that. And uh, this guy says, well, hey, I have friends who are gay and even they think that's weird. <laughs> right. And my and the third person who actually was gay was like, what the does that mean? <laughs> I just kind of slowly backed away <laughs> from the whole conversation. Get out of there. Anyway. Well, uh, yeah, it's, it seems like, yeah, he really got the short end of the stick, unfortunately. Yeah, smallful things happen to him. But, you know, his legacy is amazing, and this is this hysterical story. I think that this is such a great execution of something that a lot of the great traditional humorists do, which is that high status that's actually low is the definition of comedy. Somebody who thinks that they're really potent, powerful, wonderful, smart, and intelligent, but is actually a, an idiot. Right. That's comedy, man. That's like every sitcom father. And here, this ghost, I mean, I think the comparison, I would love to see Patrick Stewart do this, because it's clearly somebody who just has such a high opinion of themselves. Right, right. Who can't carry through. The idea of trying to scare somebody and being unsuccessful at it is pretty funny as well. I wonder if there's any good adaptations of it. Because, I mean, there's so many of them. I wonder if any of them are actually really funny or good. So if anybody's seen one that they like, please let us know. Yeah, please let us know. I'd like to watch one or two if I can. I didn't find any that were free. It Um, really seems like, honestly, Beetlejuice was like almost a different version of this story. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, even the themes are really similar. It's clever because it adds in that third actual scary ghost, you know, so it kind of gives it a, there's another point of view there that's interesting. Next week, we're going to finish up this story. I want yes. to thank our reader, David Beer, for doing another outstanding job, and he will be joining us again for our next episode. Yes. I'm really enjoying August. <laughs> this story is a nice break in the in the very serious ghost stories that we have to cover all the time. So we'll be talking more of it next week. Um, For now, I'm Chad Fife. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.